short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Ich bin ein Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. The American people, I think, is good people. They are. They have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War 57, Ray. 57, hello, how's everybody doing? They're doing great, because they're listening to us. It's the highlight of their week. (laughs) Mine too. Yeah, mine too. Um, Now this is hour two. hmm. Sometimes we stop an hour two, but we're not going to. We're going to rise to the occasion. We're going to make this awesome, because... Mm -hmm. As much as we've talked about Poland, I mean, it is they are now dealing with it again. They dealt with it at Yalta. They swept everything under the rug. It's not working. They have to bring it back out and really get down to the nitty-gritty with it. And again, this is going to help cause the further tensions between the West and the East. In the summer of 1944, uh-huh. Donald McLean, not the singer of American Pie, the other Donald McLean, moved to Washington to take up a position in the British Embassy. And as we've explained in the past, when we're talking about the Cambridge Five, he began to supply information on British-American relations and negotiations through the NKGB's headquarters in New York. And as we Mm -hmm. said at the end of the last episode, the British and the Americans, after Yalta, before the first uh, Polish Commission meeting in Moscow, are trying to get on the same page to about how they're going to outwit Molotov (laughs) in these negotiations. But McLean is transmitting all of their secret plans directly to Molotov. Uh, So he almost knows what they're doing before they know. Within 24 hours. I mean, yeah, they literally wrote... I mean, that's what you do, though. You write down everything. You write down your plans. You write down your responses. You write down your contingency plans, which, of course, is what uh, McLean got a hold of, sent copies, um, not through ordinary mail, but I think they what um, coded it and sent it by uh, transmission by radio or by something like that. And they got it to Russia pretty quick, smart. And so Molotov and Stalin are, are able to go over this and so they are going to be totally ready when these guys get together to try to work out the nut that is Poland. Now, I mentioned last time that Molotov was throwing the word fascism and the word democracy around fairly loosely to mm-hmm. uh, get what he wants with regards to the makeup of this Polish commission. And he used the relatively loose wording of the section of the Yalta Agreement about this Polish commission to get what he wanted. It's one of the reasons why they worked so hard to make sure the agreement was Uh, Mm loosey-goosey. So afterwards they could go, well, that's not our interpretation. Oh, it's all open to interpretation. It's like the Bible. (laughs) 
In the beginning was the word. What the fuck does that mean? We know a nose could mean anything. Um, so uh, sounds pretty. Yeah. Now Molotov was suggesting that the London polls mm-hmm. that the British and the Americans wanted to get in there might not be truly democratic. <gasps> he was specifically pointing the finger at Archbishop Sapia of Krakow, who, at least according to Molotov, had once opposed as being a luxury an increase in public schools. Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) Fucking fascist. Did you hurt yourself? I did. Um, He's an archbishop, for God's sake. Yes, what's that got to do with it? No, no, just, I mean, just someone at this position who goes, he, he once opposed, because they seemed to seized as a luxury, an increase in, in school, in uh, public schools. How in the hell do you go from that to fascist or not democratic? Well, because, because that's what Molotov is doing. Because he doesn't want education of the people. So I guess in Molotov's sense, that is against the people and therefore it is against democracy. Now so he's out. Yeah, now, Sapia, by the way, was the teacher of a young man, Carol mm-hmm. Votula. Mm. You know who Carol Votula was? I know in the future he's going to wear a big hat. He loved big hats and bulletproof cars. <laughs> I love big hats and I cannot lie. Anyway. <laughs> he was a Batman villain. Um, <laughs> no, wrong guy. Wrong yeah. Sapia was the teacher and mentor of the future Pope John Paul II. Mm-hmm. JP2. Now, in Molotov's eyes, it wasn't far from being not entirely democratic to being a fascist. Right. Because, you know, the Stalin's regime was incredibly democratic, Ray. You cannot get more democratic. <laughs> Than a great than a great purge. Well, <laughs> I will kill everyone equally. <laughs> you That's all have democracy. an equal chance of being sent to a gulag. So I can you know. I can shoot a general, I can shoot a baker, I can shoot a candlestick maker. It's all the same to me. <laughs> so uh Molotov said we might make a mistake and find a fascist in our midst. If we don't get Warsaw's advice. So you say, ah, because they're the guys on the ground. Yeah. Boots on the ground. Yeah. Gotcha. You say, well, listen, we don't know who these people really are. These London polls. We have to check with the Lublin polls and say, listen, can you yeah. just background check? And they were like, Ouch, oh, yeah. Something. Fascist, fascist, fascist. <laughs> oh, fascist. Yep. Fa- all fascists, Molotov. Now. Sorry. Churchill had warned everyone uh, when they were back at Yalta that the Soviets were prepared to use the term fascist indiscriminately against mm-hmm. anyone they didn't like. You could, even if you just criticised the government, you could be called a fascist. They hadn't actually defined in the document <laughs> right. what a fascist was or what democracy was. And uh, you know, even at the best of times, those those yeah. are hard to define. A lot of lot of talk today about what democracy. I I was having dinner, uh, not dinner. I caught up with coffee the other night with a friend of mine who's in his 
early 90s, American expat wow. who lives here, um, old David. And he told me Australia is not a democracy because mm. we have, our government, our federal government, gives funding to religious schools. Right. And he said, therefore, you're not a democracy. And I said, he said, because therefore you have segregation of education, therefore you're not a democracy. I said, I'm not sure that A is the definition yeah. of segregation because it's whether or not you go to a religious school or a public school or a private non-religious school is is um, a matter of choice and, and to, less, to a greater degree maybe your, your financial situation. Uh, so it's not mandated. So it can't really be segregation in the way that we usually think of segregation. Secondly... I'm not really sure that having a government that gives taxpayer funding to religious schools is a definition of non-democracy. And he said, well, you define it your way and I'll define it my way. I was like, all right. Well, I was going to say, fuck, thanks. At some Mo- point, isn't it? Thanks, Molotov. <laughs> That's what I said. Isn't at some point, it sounds like it's a matter of semantics. When you can pick a little tiny thing and say... Um, Ex post facto, you are not a democracy. I mean, that's just that's just a little extreme. But that's the way I plan on being when I'm in when I'm ninety. I'm going to <laughs> fucking yell at everybody and find yeah. fault with everybody. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to it. And this dude, like he's crazy, but he's also <laughs> really um, impressive. Like, still reading a ton of books. Uh, right. His grasp of details, his memory, his ability to. He was saying, he was talking about Roger Williams and Rhode Island. Do you know about this dude? No. Yeah, that's, I, for, I keep forgetting you've got a degree in American history. So, um, yeah, yeah. of course, you don't know him. Roger Williams was the founder of, uh, I think, the colony at Rhode Island. And uh, according to old David, it was the first community anywhere in the world in history mm-hmm. where they didn't care what religion you had. Um, and I said, ah, I think, no. I think, you know, <laughs> there were some policies in, in ancient Greece and even in ancient Rome where they didn't care. And he goes, not bullshit. And he starts arguing with me about <laughs> it. He, they killed Socrates because he was an atheist. And I said, well, <laughs> really, they, they killed Socrates because he was urging the youth not to listen to authority and, uh, and ask right. questions of authority. And that was dangerous. Well, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, well, and but his ability to, you know, yeah. just start debating shit. Like, not many people are going to debate me in ancient history, man, but he will, and he'll go toe to toe anyway. That's, well, first of all, I just want to say that he was probably there at Rhode Island. So for him, it's not history, it's current events. Actually, um, I think, but yeah, no, I think he did grow up on Rhode Island in all seriousness. Yeah, see, so, yeah. fucking same thing. Anyway, Yalta Molotov fascist. Everyone's a fascist now. <laughs> Even the U.S. congressman who who just criticized, you know, a little bit what was going on. The the Pravda, the newspaper Pravda, accused U.S. congressman Alvin. Okonski, a fascist propaganda. So you're right. I mean, they've got the F-bomb, fascist bomb, and they are just lobbing it all over the place. If you even look at them wrong, you're going to be labeled a fascist. Yeah. Now, the U.S. Embassy uh, in Moscow did a review of Soviet media in the first few months of 1945, and they, they kind of demonstrated the Soviet understanding of democracy at the time, or their view of democracy. 
They were right. they took it like like Stalin did at Yalta. They brought up the elections in Egypt, which had just happened, and they mm. were seen to be incredibly corrupt. Uh, they were basically bought and paid for. Uh, there were foreign a lot of foreign influence, and they said, "Look, that's what democracy looks like. It's right just to it, us, yeah, it, yeah. It's corrupt. It's who's got the most money manages to to buy the elections." Not very dissimilar to how a lot of people see uh, Western elections today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also attacked the Soviets. This is attacked the American model of the free press. Again, they pointed out, well, it's not exactly free. It serves <laughs> special interests. It's Word. run, you know, the, the newspapers, the, the television, the radio are owned by rich people, the wealthy people, and they, and as such, or corporations, and they represent the interests of those rich people and corporations. Again, not very dissimilar to a lot of um, modern views on the so-called free press in the West. Fake news, hashtag, is what uh, they, they wrote. He had he had a T-shirt. Stalin had a T-shirt. Hashtag fake news. But yeah, I mean, but and even then, the the communists would go even further and say, "Look at our media, controlled by the state. You don't have any of that shit. You don't have any of that fluff. We tell the hard truth, the way we see it. But we don't play games, and we're not influenced by corporations because they kowtow to the government the way it should be. So you can argue against it if you if you want, but." The, the Russians are making some pretty valid points, whether you want to hear it or not. Yeah, they said, look, our, our state is run by the people and the state controls the media. So ipso facto, the media is controlled by the people. That is how you want it to be, not where it's run by a handful of rich cunts. <laughs> now, they didn't deny that the United States or the United Kingdom or other Western countries were also democracies. Yeah. But they said they have their version of democracy. We have our version of democracy. Our version of democracy is better. Keeping in mind that democracy really just means the the power of the demos, the people. And so mm-hmm. they say, well, we have a version of a democracy. They have a version of a democracy. They, they may look not look the same, but it doesn't mean theirs is better than ours. Same, same, but different. Right. And um, and they made a very and a lot of people I think gave them crap for this. But after Yalta, the Soviet press said that Yalta was the achievement of the great democratic powers. And from their point of view, they were absolutely right. It was not tongue in cheek. Um, but obviously, that's not going to be acceptable to a lot of people. Certainly, Churchill and a lot of people in the West. Yeah. So, hmm. Now Churchill had been going on about this for some time, the fact that the Soviets would use definitions and terminology to wiggle around the intent of the agreements in Yalta. Um, But in December of 1944, a little bit before Yalta, when the whole debate about Greece was going on, He had found himself uh, forced to define what his understanding of democracy was when he was in Parliament. He said, who are the friends of democracy? And also, how is the word democracy to be interpreted? My idea of it is that the plain, humble 
common man, just the ordinary man who keeps a wife and family, who goes off to fight for his country when it is in trouble, goes to the pole at the appropriate time, puts his cross on the ballot paper showing the candidate he wishes to be elected to parliament. That is the foundation of democracy. Somebody said, and so you are a blue blood fucking motherfucker born, you know, <laughs> into enormous wealth, generations of, of blue blood aristocracy behind you. Right. And you use that to make more money. Yeah. Uh, what the fuck do you know about the plain, humble, common man? <laughs> Shut the fuck up. Yeah. Have that man arrested. Here's scum. And shot. Shot. Yeah. 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 How dare you? Um, yeah, no, nothing if not uh, a, a, a very able hypocrite uh, Churchill. Self-serving. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. He knows how to do it. Of now, course. see, all of this... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I, I was saying that he said, um, yeah. uh, armed bands wishing to establish a totalitarian, totalitarian regime were the last thing that resembles democracy. Now... You know, we know that there's been plenty of revolutions, like the American Revolution, which was armed bands by God. wishing to establish a totalitarian regime. Uh, sure, they had kind of voting in, as long as you voted the, you know, in the way that they wanted you to vote. Um, but th- this is the guy that has just sent his army to put a king back on a throne in Greece. So I don't know, man. It's <laughs> It's very convenient to define democracy yeah. in a particular way when you're putting monarchs back on thrones. I don't know. Well, it's like I always say, what's good for the goose is not good for the gander if the goose doesn't want the gander to have it. Some, something like that. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly how it flows. Uh-huh. Anyway, so so, the, so this stuff with Poland, okay, this is all semantics. This It's about to get real now. So February 13th, 1945, Secretary of State, United States uh, Secretary of State, Statinius and his staff is invited to a reception by the Deputy Commissar of Foreign Affairs, one Andre Vyshinsky, remember him, the door slammer, into Moscow. So the secretary is joined by his staff, H. Freeman Matthews, Alger Hiss, and Wilder Foote which is a badass name if you think about it. So that they fly there and they only spend one, one day in Moscow. Of course, they're able to catch the, uh, the uh, performance Swan Lake at the Bolshoi. Good for them. But again, so these people are coming there. They're going to try to start to work this stuff out. But again, they may... I don't even know how, to, how much to put in this because I don't know how much we want to go into. But again, there, there are people within this camp that may already be working for, for the Soviets and... No one knows about it, and they won't know about it for quite some time. Yeah. So Vyshensky is taking these guys out on the town. Um, no, no hookers. Let's not even get anywhere near that. Uh, but he, he's giving toasts left and right with the with the vodka. So he says the Soviet Union is doing its best to learn from the United States no pun intended, and has already mastered the art of producing many of the things for which America is famous. He hoped that the Soviet Union would eventually not only equal but surpass the United States in production. So, yes, it's all about economics, as Cam and I have said, ad nauseum, but this is also about competition, 
theoretically a good, healthy competition between two equals. We all know that's bullshit, but that's kind of the way it's being couched. It's like, yes, you have taught us a lot, and hopefully one day we can challenge you. <laughs> but everybody's out for themselves. He said, yes, we are learning very much from the United States by us, through our spies. They said, whoa, whoa, what? Did, did I say that? <laughs> no, oh, no, I'm no. very sorry. I did. What? <laughs> my glasses, I, my, my spy glasses, the, the, the glasses, yeah. In fact, at dinner that night, February 13th, 1945, or maybe later at the Bolshoi, Vyshinsky mm-hmm. met with a particular spy and thanked him for his efforts. Now, this was a spy who was actually part of the American diplomatic contingency that was there Mm -hmm. in Moscow uh, meeting Mm -hmm. to discuss the future of Poland. On March 30th... It's Titinius. It's Titinius, right? On March 30th, so six weeks later, uh, Lieutenant Anatoly Gorsky who was sort of the head of the Washington branch of the NKGB, sent a report to his superiors of Moscow uh, on a meeting that he, or that one of his officers actually, uh, somebody mm-hmm. referred to as A in the cable, and a Soviet agent who had been at Yalta and was codenamed Ales, A-L-E-S, had had. Mm. Right. Now, the uh, message was in cipher. It was signed with Gorsky's code name, which was Vardam, and it read as follows. As a result of A's chat with Arles, the following has been ascertained. Arles has been working with the neighbours continuously since 1935. For some years past, he has been the leader of a small group of the neighbours' probationers, for the most part consisting of his relatives. The group and Arliss himself work on obtaining military information only. Materials on the bank allegedly interest the neighbours very little, and he does not produce them regularly. Recently, Arliss and his whole group were awarded Soviet decorations. After the Yalta conference already in Moscow, Arliss was allegedly contacted by a Soviet personage in a very responsible position, Arles gave to understand that it was Comrade Vyshinsky and mm-hmm. on the instruction of the military neighbours passed on to him their gratitude. Ooh. Now, of course, in this, the neighbours meant Red Army Intelligence and the bank is, is talking about the US State Department. Right. Now, the text of the message was intercepted by the Americans as part of the Verona Uh-oh. Project that we mentioned many, many episodes ago. If you don't remember, the Verona Project was the uh, Americans intercepting uh, all of the cable transmissions back to Moscow, but it was all encoded and it took them a number of years to be able to decipher these uh, coded transmissions. Yeah, they didn't even get started until uh, 1943. So, yeah, it's going to take them a while because, as you imagine, there's a lot of messages they're going to pick up and it's all going to take time. Yeah. Now, uh, today, most historians believe that Arles, the Soviet spy mm-hmm. who was part of the American uh, 
camp at both Yalta and in Moscow for the Polish Commission meetings was none other than Alger Hiss. The deputy mm-hmm. director at the time of the Office of Special Political Affairs at the State Department and Roosevelt's point man at this point, at this stage, for the creation of the United Nations. We've, of course, mentioned him before. Right. Um, and I don't want to go into too much detail because his story is going to play out over the course of the series. But um, right. you want to shed a little bit of light on him at this point in time, Ray? Yeah. Well, there's there's just several things that if you wanted to build a case against Algerhis, you could easily do so. He was at Yalta. He traveled to Moscow after Yalta, which the report talked about. He was a member of the communist movement back in the 1930s. He had relatives who uh, might have been spies. He had a brother in the State Department, and his wife shared his political views. Um uh, and so, so again, a lot of things point to him. Nothing conclusive at this point, but it certainly he does seem to fit all all of the uh, what little bit we know at this point. So again, everything points to him, but not quite sure. But it certainly would make sense if he is a Russian spy. Yeah. Now, at this point in time, uh, sort of just post Yalta, he was a bit of a media darling because he was appointed right. the Secretary General of the very first United Nations conference in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Time magazine did a number of stories about the UN where they talked about Alger Hiss. Uh, they characterized him in their April 16th issue as a lanky, Harvard-trained Alger Hiss, one of the State Department's brighter young men. Ooh. Uh, it said that Hiss would be an important figure at the founding conference. As Secretary General managing the agenda, he will have a lot to say behind the scenes about who gets the breaks. Nice, yeah. And uh, also, uh, now, maybe I'm reading too much into this, but the founder and publisher of uh, Time Magazine on May 28th, 1945, also made sure there was a story wrote about him. Um, Young, handsome, a U.S. State Department career man, master of the incredibly complicated conference machinery. So they're they're pushing him. Uh, he's being he's being feted by a lot of people. They're they're impressed with him. Uh, he's getting a lot of positive uh, a lot of positive press. That would be I would think the last person you would think working for the Russians. The person who uh, wrote that was the magazine's founder and publisher Henry Luch, uh, who created uh, not only Time Magazine, but uh, Life Magazine, Fortune Magazine, and Sports yeah. Illustrated. So he's he's rich as fuck. Rich and powerful, man. Um, right. yeah. yeah. Like, seriously, media magnate, most important media magnate in the United States, probably in the middle of the 20th century. Um, Surprised he didn't run for president. Of course, he might have, and I don't know. Yeah, no, he didn't, but uh, he had a lot to do with policy. He was very close to all of the presidents, uh, sort of from the, the I don't know. Uh, Kingmaker, not king himself. Early, yeah. Right. Um, he formed Time, Inc. with a couple of other guys in uh, 1922 when he was 23 years old. Wow. Yeah. Now, was he, did you find out anything about him being, uh, working for the Russians? I'm just trying to picture why he's blowing sunshine up this young gentleman's arse. 
No, no, he was no, he was as American as they come. Even though he was born in China, um, no, he was uh, very, very American, pro-American. But this guy was just. Uh, I mean, Hiss was just a, a rising superstar, man. He was the he was the first Secretary General of the United Nations. I mean, yeah, he was young, he was smart, he was handsome, he was an up and comer, and Henry wanted to suck his dick. That's you know basically yeah. how it comes in. Um, yeah. <laughs> now, not all of the editors at time at this point were excited about either the Yalta Conference or Alger Hiss. One of them in particular was a guy called Whitaker Chambers. Now Chambers, cool name. That's a poor yeah. name. Sorry. Oh yeah, could be. He was a he was an impressive uh, and interesting dude, Whitaker Chambers. He wrote a negative piece in Time about the Alter Conference entitled "The Ghosts on the Roof," uh, mm. where he portrayed Stalin as basically a continuation of the imperialist policy of the. Sars, he said Tsar Nicholas II would have praised Stalin's territorial acquisitions in Eastern Europe at Yalta. Um, Shouldn't Stalin do that? Isn't that part of Stalin's job? Well, that depends on how you view um, communism, I guess. And and Chambers had been a communist Mm -hmm. activist during the (gasps) 20s and the 30s, had actually served as a courier for other activists who were spying for the Soviet Union. But uh, sort of after the, the the purge and the Great Terror, he flipped, right. denounced the communists, denounced the Soviet Union. But when he heard about Hiss becoming the Secretary General of the UN in San Francisco, he complained to his colleagues that Hiss was a communist but getting important jobs nonetheless. That's Every, not fair. Everyone said, shut the fuck up. Stop whinging, <laughs> Witto. Um, yeah, so he uh, had denounced his before, though, on the first day of the Second World War back in 1939, he had written a letter to the Assistant Secretary of State in charge of intelligence, old Aldolf Berl Jr., and denounced Hiss and a number of other government officials in Washington as being Communist Party members. Now, at the time, the FBI didn't really care so much about commies. Right. And, and commies in yeah, the government. I, well, I just think it's interesting. Yeah, when war breaks out, that's not exactly going to be in their top five things to investigate yeah, because you got to make sure the Nazis and the, you know, the Italians or whatever are behaving themselves. So again, I just find it interesting. Um, but um, what? I didn't say anything. It's the voices oh, in sorry. your head. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so, but again, he, he immediately writes this what was guy that, mother? out. And it, Kill them all, okay. mother. <laughs> yes, mother. But eventually, eventually the FBI is going to get around to, oh yeah, this guy came in and wrote us a letter. So they're going to get to it. Uh, and they interview uh, Chambers in 1942. Uh, they go over his testimony, uh, not testimony, they go over his uh, theory again. And of course they interview Hiss uh, after this, but he denies everything. And so the FBI moves on because they pretty much don't have anything but Chambers' word. That's not enough. They leave the guy alone. Yeah. But J. Edgar Hoover was wearing yeah. a dress. And Hoover... <laughs> Hoover was, you know, on his anti-commie thing at this point, and he 
got his agents to interview Chambers again in May 1945, and then they leaked potentially damaging information about Hiss to friendly members of Congress and to the infamous anti-communist Catholic priest John Cronin. Damn. Now, Cronin was an uh, 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 anti-communist crusader long before McCarthy or Richard Nixon. Um, mm-hmm. I've got some Cronin here. I think... Uh, They're going to give me nightmares. Other congressional committees are privileged or... No, fuck that. Wrong thing. Don't worry. No. I don't have it at hand. Okay. Um, w- wouldn't you say that Jesus was a socialist? Oh, yeah, but let's not get into there. That's right. <laughs> no, that's fine. Yeah, the early Christian communities, as I've said on one, I think on this series early on, based on some of the stuff in the New Testament anyway, I think it's uh, based on some of Paul's epistles and based on the gospel according to Luke. Uh, they shared everything that they had, all of their possessions with each other. It's usually referred to, the, the early Christians are referred to as sort of proto-communism. Um, mm-hmm. But don't let that get in the way no. of complaining. Of course, the the Marxist version, <laughs> Marxist uh, and Engels' view and Leninist view of communism was anti-religion because it saw religion as a tool of the elite to keep the masses down and they saw it as a way of uh, that the elite had accrued wealth and real estate and all those sorts of things. So they were very atheist in their views. They tended to ban religion, the communists, in any countries that they established themselves in, at least for periods of time, And as mm-hmm. as did the... French Revolution uh, got rid of religion for the same sort of reasons. So, of course, the the religious leaders in the West tended to be against communism purely for that um, factor. Uh, that if it took off in the United States or the United Kingdom or Australia, if people accepted communism and thought about it and they actually went to the trouble of reading Das Kapital... And they and um, Communist Manifesto, and they thought about it. And they thought, yeah, you know, why should one percent of the population control ninety nine percent of the wealth and resources? That's not moral. That's not fair. It should be shared equally. Yes, let's establish uh, a communist society, communist government, uh, where the people have control, and that would. It, probably lead to the end of religion in those countries. And so the religious leaders in America and the rest of the West were firmly against socialism and communism, not for any other real reason than, it, it, you know, Self-preservation. Co- covering their own asses. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get down to the nitty gritty. No, so no, 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 no. I'm not no, finished. No. Don't fucking oh, fuck. Reader's Shit. Digest. John Cronin and Chambers, right? So I want to talk more about Chambers. Chambers wrote an autobiography later on called Witness. Ronald Reagan 
credited the book as the inspiration behind his conversion from being a New Deal Democrat to a conservative Republican. So, Uh kind of the rise of the modern Reagan-era GOP, which Donald Trump is the bastard child of... (laughs) The red-headed stepchild. Uh You can trace back... To Whitaker Chambers, who was bitching about Hiss in uh, 1939 and then again in 1945. According to George Will, who's a contemporary conservative political commentator in the US, this is a quote from Mm -hmm. him about Chambers' book. Witness became a canonical text of conservatism. Unfortunately, it injected conservatism with a sour, whiny, complaining, crybaby populism. It is the screechy and dominant tone of the loutish, foul conservative, faux conservatism, that today is erasing William F. Buckley's legacy of infectious cheerfulness and unapologetic embrace of high culture. Chambers wallowed in cloying sentimentality and curdled resentment about the plain men and women, my people, humble people, strong in common sense, in common goodness, enduring the musk of snobbism emanating from the socially formidable circles of the nicest people produced by certain collegiate eeries. Damn. So... This Whitaker Chambers, very important guy in 20th century American conservative political thinking. Cool. We should check him out one day. Anyway, did you want to say anything about uh, the priest? Are you pretty much done with Cronin? I'm done with Cronin for now. We'll get to him later in the series. No, so again, without going into too much detail, I mean... You know, was his a spy? Did he contribute at Yalta? Did he actually pass anything over at Yalta? Because you've, you've got to be thinking that their schedules were so tight. I mean, was there a chance for him to, to sneak away? So I think it's really unlikely that he actually did anything at Yalta. Did he do something before? Did he do something after? Obviously, that's very possible. But as far as being able to help Stalin in any way during those days of Yalta just doesn't seem possible to me. Well, we've covered this before. I mean, Hiss was not really very useful at Yalta. He didn't have a lot to contribute. And in fact, interestingly, he didn't really take a pro-Soviet stand at Yalta. He led Mm -hmm. the opposition on behalf of the American delegation to standards proposal that the Soviet Union should get two additional seats in the General Assembly. So it's kind of strange. On one hand, we're fairly convinced, particularly because of um, new evidence that has come out post the end of the Soviet Union, that he was indeed Mm -hmm. uh, a Soviet spy, but he doesn't seem to have necessarily been under the thumb. He kind of saw himself as a bit of a free agent. He would oppose them when he thought they should be opposed, and he would support them when he thought they should be supported. He wasn't... Didn't have any sort of blind yeah. allegiance to following their line of argument by the sounds of it. Right. But and, um, and I was thinking... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go No, I was just going to say that Stalin had so many other spies contributing information, obviously, to get ready for Yalta. And that if you... And if you 
and um, Hiss is pretty much going to be able to contribute to political matters, not military matters. And so that's something that you would keep quiet. You wouldn't access that. You wouldn't activate it because you know that he's going to pay off after all this this is said and done, certainly after the war. And so it would even make sense that if he did oppose the Soviets, that would help throw off suspicion. But I think you're right. I think he was a free agent and he stood up to them um, when he, he thought it was right, which is, is pretty brave at the same time. Um, but again, so his, his contribution, if you will, is going to come later. Yeah, and it's mostly in a negative sense. We, we will get into his trial and his run-in with Nixon and all of that stuff later on. As I mm-hmm. mentioned, I think in the early episode where we talked about him briefly, he denied being a Soviet spy his entire life, but it is now assumed that he was, in fact, a Soviet spy based on evidence that's come out of um, Russia. But, um, you know, his real importance to this whole story is that during his trial, his presence at Yalta was used to denounce not only the Yalta conference itself, but also Roosevelt's New Deal and his entire foreign policy legacy uh, a few years after his death. So, Uh, yeah. So believe it or not, Stalin didn't trust Churchill and FDR. And as many spies as he had in the United States and Britain and and, uh, throughout the world, uh, from what we can tell, that was vastly increased after Yalta because he was going to keep an eye on these guys. He wanted to even know about little tiny things, uh, policy changes as soon as they happened. He always wanted to know what their current position was in regards to him, himself, Poland, that kind of thing. So, again, the spy network that the Soviets have, which they should be applauded for, one of the best in the world, um, increased was increased vastly uh, after Yalta because he's truly going to keep an uh, eye on these guys because he knows he can't trust them, and he knows that they do not trust him. Yeah, by the end of the war, it's estimated that the Soviets had hundreds, if not thousands, of <laughs> undercover Soviet intelligence officers and agents and informants just in the United States alone. Damn. Let alone like the Cambridge Five, who are in England mostly, um, all feeding him information on American plans and strategies. And, of course, as we've pointed out before, the British and the Americans pretty much had no idea what was going on. <laughs> they found out later on. They were shocked. Shocked, I tell you. Shocked yeah, that there is gambling. They had to read history books. Yeah. <laughs> they had to read history books later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, partly, I think, as you mentioned, it, it was the information that Stalin is getting from his spies that helped fuel his suspicions that his allies couldn't be trusted. Like, he didn't trust them anyway to begin with because they were capitalists and because they tried to invade the Soviet Union before, etc., etc. But now he's got his own spies Mm -hmm. talking about how they are legitimately ganging up against him and lying to him within weeks of Yalta. (laughs) And so it's no wonder that he didn't believe anything that they told him because he knew for a fact they were just fucking flat out lying to him constantly. And, of course, on top of all of this, he knows about the Manhattan Project and they haven't told him about the Manhattan Project either. So um, this sort of is represented in uh, a meeting 
that he had with Marshal Zukov on March 29th. So remember, Yalta finished uh, sort of the second week of February. Here we are maybe six weeks later. He calls Zukov mm-hmm. to the Kremlin to discuss the Red Army offensive against Berlin. But while Zukov is there, he shows him a letter from one of what Stalin calls his Western well-wishers. <laughs> uh, do you have Zukov's quote about the uh, letter? Oh, yeah, let's see here. It, it's, it's reported on... Um, what? Again, I didn't say anything. It's the voices in your oh, head. The, the, no, there's this... There's this background okay okay um let's see it's reported on behind the scenes negotiations between hitler's agents and official representatives of the allies from which it became apparent that the germans were posing and to end the struggle against them if they would agree to a separate peace on any condition also said that the allies had supposedly declined the german demands but still possible that germans may open the road to berlin to allow the allied troops through Stalin turns to Zhukov and he says, what is your opinion of, of you know, them making a separate peace or accepting a separate peace if, if it is offered to them by the Germans? And then Stalin answered his own question by saying, I think, <laughs> I think Roosevelt will not violate the Yalta Agreement. But as for Churchill, he is capable of anything. Now, when uh, the thing that Zukov read this letter from the well-wisher was a report on the so-called burn incident, B-E-R-N, not B-U-R-N. That was something completely different. The burn incident. Right. Now, the burn incident, we're going to talk about a little bit here because it's, you know, it's just a fucking lot to unpack in this burn incident. Um, it was a series of secret meetings held between U.S. foreign intelligence and Nazi senior Nazis in northern mm-hmm. Italy in early 1945. The key guy on the American side of things was Alan Dulles. Now, Alan Dulles goes on to run the CIA, basically create the CIA, Mm-hmm. Um, and his brother was, I think, Secretary of State later right. on. The Dulles brothers, this is who Dulles, is it Dulles Airport? Is that what it's called, the airport yep. in Washington? Yep. Um, the These guys go on and they're an absolute power in foreign policy in the United States for decades uh, but at the time, Alan Dulles was the station chief of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services uh, in Bern. And he made contact with a chap, a Nazi, by the name of <laughs> Obergruppenführer Karl Wolf. Nice. Who had formerly been the head of Himmler's secretariat, but in these last years of the war was a commander of the SS in northern Italy, who was responsible for, among other things, the deportation of the Jews. 
and uh, keeping any any Italian partisans down who might want to give trouble to the occupiers, uh, to the Nazis. And you have to keep in mind that Alan Dulles was a bit of a renegade. He didn't like having people over him. He liked to run his own operations. He made a lot of money in the stock market. Uh, he, he quit that. He uh, he got this going. He, he worked on FDR for a long time to get the OSS going. So he's in, he's in Switzerland. He's meeting everybody he possibly can, uh, whether they're real spies, whether they're fake spies, whether they're just trying to get some money out of him because he's a dumb American, whatever. But eventually there, there, there are rumors that um, he, there's someone of a pretty important position wants to meet with him, and it may concern the shortening of the war in the West. And so this is something that he has to take seriously. And so, so, there's, some, so there's some preliminary meetings with some other people, but eventually this is a meeting to set up between Dulles and Wolf, and of course they're both going to be feeling each other out and uh, and at the same time obviously they can't trust each other but if they could work together they could both get a lot out of this uh, obviously Alan could go down in the history books and uh, Wolf could be end up saving a lot of his own men who he knows eventually are going to be killed or captured by the Americans by the British or in a worst case scenario by the Soviets now fortunately Ray I um actually have uh, a clip yes. of this first meeting. Basically, what's going on down here is... Uh, what's going on is that um, Wolf, uh, the the Urban Gruppenführer Karl Wolf, basically mm-hmm. approaches Dallas and says, um, what if I was to surrender? The entire, you know, Nazi army in Italy. What would that be worth? And fortunately, due to some spies, we have a recording of this meeting. If I were sitting where you're sitting, would you show me mercy? Oh. What is that English expression about shoes and feet? Looks like the shoes on the other foot. Yeah, I'm just thinking. You can wegtreten. Bleiben Sie am Posten draußen. You're Aldo the Apache. You're the Jew hunter. I'm a detective. I'm a good detective. Finding people is my specialty, so naturally I worked for the Nazis finding people. Yes, some of them were Jews, but Jew hunter? Just a name that stuck. Well, you do have to admit, it is catchy. You control the nicknames your enemies bestow on you? Aldo the Apache and the little man? What do you mean, the little man? German's nickname for you. The German's nickname for me is the little man? And as if to make my point, I'm a little surprised how tall you were in real life. I mean, you're a little fellow, but not circus midget little as your reputation would suggest. Where's my man? <laughs> Sorry, Ray, is that a little bit close to home? Is that, is, <laughs> you know, is that, is that cutting? It, it hurt. It hurt. Where's, and where's and just to make it clear for everybody, are you still playing the clip? Yeah, but what were you going to say? 
No, just to make it clear for everybody, Karl Ruf was in charge of all the SS forces and the German police in northern Italy. So if he does capitulate and give up, obviously the things that that is holding northern Italy together for the Nazis would completely fall apart. So this is a big deal. This would be a huge feather in the cap of Alan Dulles. Well, let's just say she got what she deserved. When you purchase friends like Bridget von Hansen. As of this moment, both Omar and Donowitz should be sitting in the very seats we left them in. Double zero twenty-three, double zero twenty-four, if my memory serves. Explosive still around the ankle, still ready to explode and the omission. Some would call it terrorist plot. As of this moment, is still a go. That's a pretty exciting story. What's next? Lies on ice? However, all I have to do is pick up this phone right here, inform the cinema, and your plan's kaput. If they're still here. And if they're still alive. And that's one big if. There ain't no way you're going to take them boys out setting off them bombs. I have no doubt. And yes, some Germans will die, and yes, it will ruin the evening, and yes, Goebbels will be very, very, very mad at you for what you've done to his big night. You won't get Hitler, you won't get Goebbels, you won't get Goering, and you won't get Bormann. And you need all four to end the war. Don't pick up this phone right here. You may very well get all four. Get all four, you end the war. Gentlemen, let's discuss the prospect of ending the war tonight. So the way I see it, since Hitler's death of possible rescue rests solely on my reaction, if I do nothing, it's as if I'm causing his death even more than yourselves. Would you agree? I guess so. How about you, Yutovich? I guess so, too. Gentlemen, I have no intention of killing Hitler and killing Goebbels and killing Goering and killing Bormann, not to mention winning the war single-handedly for the Allies, only later to find myself standing before a Jewish tribunal. If you want to win the war tonight, we have to make a deal. <laughs> That's the bit I wanted. If you want to win the war tonight, <laughs> we have to make a deal. And that's how it ended. So that's uh, so this really happened. Uh, for those of you that have seen Inglorious Bastards, uh, Hans is really Karl Wolf, and he wasn't going to have Hitler killed, but he was doing a secret deal with the Americans to end the war. Now, there's been a lot of debate since the end of World War II about how much Wolf operated on his own, how much Hitler knew, how much Himmler knew about what he was doing. What are your thoughts on that, Ray? Uh, even though Wolf met with Himmler and he met with Hitler and he pretty much told them that it would be something to try to drive a wedge between the Amer- the Western powers and Stalin. And let's face it, it pretty it worked pretty well. Um I don't think it uh, was legitimate. He he didn't even tell Kessering, who was in charge of all the uh, German forces, access forces in Italy. So I think he was literally testing the American to see what he could get. 
And then, of course, the question is, was he really going to go to Kesselring and maybe um, uh, try to talk him into, you know, surrendering to the Americans? I don't think it was ever that realistic. I don't. I think he was speaking for himself. I think he was probably hoping to uh, build momentum and get things to break his way. I don't think it was ever real. But the fact that they had these conversations and Alan Dulles was a bit of an amateur, uh, even at this point. Um, so I don't think it was going to happen. But the point is, no matter what you do, no matter how real it is, you just know Stalin is going to find out about this. Why in the hell? Because the American government and the British government approved this. And I don't know how much you want to go into because they actually have several talks. This gets pretty far. The two uh, Western powers governments agree to to keep it going. And you just know Stalin's going to find out. I just really don't see how this possibly could have worked and not piss off Stalin for the Americans to get everything they wanted. It just seems absolutely ludicrous. But of course, that's with hindsight. Yeah. Well, we are going to go into it in a lot of detail yes. because Deep. it it uh, is a defining moment. Uh, in fact, a lot of historians believe the Cold War started here with the famous burn incident. But uh, I think we will leave that till the next episode because I think we're almost at an hour. Um, that is so- correct. I'm practicing my German. I'm getting ready for the next episode. Good, good. Keep that up there. Uh, I'm going to read another review. This one also from the United States. Ace Fan thirteen thirteen. The way I see it is that there are two ways to see this podcast. One, the world's best history podcasting duo, Ray and Cam, are back with another winner with this thorough, interesting, and unique history of the Cold War. Two... An American occasionally interrupts the ghost of Karl Marx as he seemingly switches between the voice of Winston Churchill and some Australian pleb in a 50-plus episode podcast about the Yalta Conference. Either way, it's as great as a listen as their other podcasts, and Cam Array are really offering a great service by sharing their history research with their listeners. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, AceFan1313. Shoot us an email. Dunk a shame. With your address. And we will uh, shoot you a thank you gift. That we will shoot you back. All the time we have for episode 57. Episode 58, we'll be back. We'll be talking about the burn incident. Buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.